The reading this morning is Psalm 2. Why do the nations conspire and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth rise up and the rulers band together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, let us break their chains and throw off their shackles. The one enthroned in heaven laughs. The Lord scoffs at them. He rebukes them in his anger and terrifies them in his wrath, saying, I have installed my king on Zion, my holy mountain. I will proclaim the Lord's decree. He said to me, you are my son. Today, I have become your father. Ask me, and I will make the nations your inheritance, the ends of the earth your possession. You will break them with a rod of iron. You will dash them to pieces like pottery. Therefore, you kings, be wise. Be warned, you rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and celebrate his rule with trembling. Kiss his son, or he will be angry, and your way will lead to your destruction, for his wrath can flare up in a moment. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. The word of the Lord. Well, good morning. My name is Jeff. For those of you who don't know me, I'm one of the pastors here. And before we continue to consider uh, God's word together, uh, would you please join with me in prayer? Father, again, uh, you speak to us. And in these words, you tell us about yourself. And so we pray even now that your spirit would open our minds, our eyes, our hearts, that we might see you more clearly, that we might see your majestic son, our king, and be filled with awe and wonder as we worship him. And I pray this in Jesus' name, amen. Well, I think there's something kind of ironic. This was not intended, but that on 4th of July weekend, we are considering a psalm that has everything to do with our king. This is what Psalm 2 is about, how God has enthroned Christ Jesus as our king. And we should acknowledge that that is a challenging thing for us to connect with, because specifically the things that we're celebrating this weekend, we have declared independence from a king. We don't really have any relational bandwidth for understanding what it's like to have a king, do we? I mean, the idea of kind of prostrating ourselves before someone just because they're a king and, and swearing allegiance. I mean, every ruler that we have is someone that we have voted in and we can kick out at any time. And we feel no trouble criticizing them. That's, that's not typical for us to think in terms of, of revering a leader, which is the way we should think of a king. And so that means there's something challenging about connecting to a psalm that has everything to do with a king. But there's also something really necessary. Because even though our country is a democracy, our world is a monarchy. God is God, and Christ Jesus is king. And we need to understand what that means so that we ourselves can respond rightly, so that we can worship our king. 
And so that's where this psalm takes us. And what we see here is really kind of four different stanzas, each three verses long, and each providing a different angle or perspective on this theme of God's kingship in Christ. The first three verses is the perspective of the world, a world that is in rebellion, rejecting the king. The next three verses is the perspective of God as he responds to this rebellion. And then the next three verses, seven through nine, are spoken from the perspective of the king himself before finally in the final three verses, we see the perspective of faith calling us to respond to our king. And I invite you, if you don't have your bulletins open, your Bibles open, to open them because we'll just simply be working through verse by verse so you can kind of be seeing and considering what this psalm says to us. And this psalm begins with chaos. Why do the nations conspire? That word conspire is, is the idea of are, they're in tumult. There is confusion. There is, there is disorder. Why are the nations in disorder? And even the leaders are plotting in vain. They, they set out to do things and they never seem to be effective. It's describing a time that the psalm was written, but it's describing our time as well, if you think about it. Doesn't it feel right now like the world is in chaos? There is Disorder in the Middle East, there is confusion about refugees, there is you know, confusion about who should lead and how things should be led, and then leaders are trying to come up with solutions. How do we do health care? How do we solve these problems? And it seems like nothing is working. The nations are in chaos, and the leaders plot in vain. And he asks, why? And then, and then he kind of takes the camera and zooms in closer and, and draws our attention to what he sees the heart of this. He says... The kings of the earth rise up, and the rulers band together against the Lord and against his anointed one. Now, it's helpful, I think, to know that that word anointed one is a translation of the Hebrew word Messiah. Or when the Greek translates this Hebrew, it, it translates it to Christ. It's they are conspiring against God and against his Christ. The word anointed one or Messiah or Christ, we're all speaking of one who is specially appointed by God to rule on his behalf. The rulers of the world are opposing not only God, but the king that God has chosen to rule the world, it is saying. Now, when the psalm was written, it's speaking about David and David's descendants and how the nations around Israel were rejecting David and opposing him. But, but if we continue throughout the Bible, we realize by the time we come to the New Testament, that Christians recognize that this psalm is actually ultimately talking about Jesus. And so in Acts chapter 4, after Peter and John have gone to prison because they have said that Jesus is king and they're released, the church prays together and they pray this psalm. They say together, you know, why do the nations conspire and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth rise up and the rulers band together against the Lord and against his anointed. Sovereign Lord, you spoke through the Holy Spirit by the mouth of David when you said this. What they're saying is they recognize that the persecution that they were experiencing was being prophesied long ago in Psalm 2. How the world opposes not only God, but God's anointed one. The world opposes his Christ which in its fullness is Jesus. And that has continued throughout the ages. If, if you study history, you know that, that after the times, of the biblical times, you have a time when the Roman Empire is threatened 
by Christ, by the rule of Christ seen in Christianity. And so they seek to stamp it out, basically making it at certain times so that on the pain of death, you had to swear that you had allegiance to a certain idol. That continues even today. I was reading recently about North Korea, how if you were found to be a Christian or even associated with Christianity in some way, you were likely to go to a political camp where, where torture or death were both incredibly likely. The peoples of this world and the leaders plot, conspire against God and against his anointed. And here we see more specifically the reason. It says, let us break their chains and throw off their shackles. The reason there's opposition is because, because having a king is something people don't want. They prefer freedom from rule. And they see Christ's reign as, as claustrophobic, as enslaving. They want the joy of being on their own. And when we understand that that's what's driving this opposition to God and his Christ, then we should start realizing that it's not just those countries out there that are persecuting Christians that this is talking about. It's talking about what we see in our country as well. If you're a history, uh, a history buff or in any way knowledgeable of the last few centuries, you know that in the, the 17th and 18th century in the West, we have what was described as the Age of Enlightenment, which was a time, especially philosophically, where people were saying, we don't want to know what God tells us. We want to think for ourselves. In fact, if what we come up with, what we decide is in disagreement with the Bible, that's okay because it's more important to know what we think is true than what God thinks is true. The, the, the catchphrase of the time was dare to think. But really what was the words that they were actually saying, if they were honest, is let us throw off the chains and break the shackles. Let us free ourselves from the constraining rule of God and of his Christ. Now, I don't know if I've just lost you, because I know I spoke about philosophy, and you're like, well, philosophy, yeah, that's what they talk about in the academic circles, but how is that relevant? But you know what? That thinking of us being able to think for ourselves and not having to worry about what God says, that's everywhere. In fact, it's so common, we don't even think that there's another alternative. How often have, have we heard it said, or maybe we even said, well, you know what? The God that I believe in wouldn't do that. Now, sometimes I could just be saying, you know, this is how I've understood who God is because he's shown himself in his word. But sometimes here's what I think people are saying. It's like, I've decided this is God ha how God has to be. God has to be someone who's loving. God has to be someone who doesn't get angry about certain things that I don't think he should be angry at. And if he's not like that, then I'm not going to worship him. As if, like, in some ways there's this job interview and God has to check off certain boxes before we allow him to be our God. Now, I probably am stating the obvious here, but that's not actually how God works. God has said, this is who I am, and this is my king. And anytime we say, well, no, 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 I don't care, because this is the kind of God that I'm wanting to worship, what we're actually saying is let us break the chains and cast off the shackles because I want to decide for myself. We see it in, in discussions of morality today too, don't we? You know, the reason why it is so offensive to so many that the Christian church would say that sex is supposed to stay within a marriage between a husband and wife goes deeper than most of us think. It's because it is almost inconceivable to many that we would hold ourselves accountable to a standard above ourselves. 
that we would say our responsibility is to submit to a king. Because our age is so permeated by the idea of we get to decide for ourselves. Let us throw off the chains, cast off the shackles. That is the mentality not only of the places where Christianity is persecuted, but of the East as well. And, and so this is the situation that the psalm is speaking into. The world is in uproar and chaos. People are futile. People are standing against God and against his Christ. And the psalmist asks a simple question, why? Why is it like this? What's the end goal that people are pursuing when they're deciding to kind of get rid of God? And what's the real reason for it? Because those of us who know the rule of Christ know that his yoke is easy and his burden is light. It is not enslaving. Why? Our psalm never answers that question because there is no answer. Because sin ultimately is based on lies and foolishness. And that foolishness becomes apparent when we change perspectives and look from the perspective of God. And that's what we see in verses 4 through 6. How how does God respond to this? When he sees humanity kind of shaking its fists, saying, I'm going to go my own way. Is is God running around in heaven asking, what do I do? What do I do? What do I do? Does Does he feel like his feelings are hurt? And is he wounded and feeling defensive? No, of course not. What does it say? God looks down and he laughs. And not a laughter because it's delightful, but a laughter because he is so completely unthreatened and because rebellious humanity looks so utterly ridiculous. I mean, it is ridiculous when you think about it. I remember a friend of mine saying, imagine that right now you are getting in a disagreement with God. You don't like what he's doing. When you face him face to face and have an argument on the last day, who do you think is going to win that argument? 50 million years from now, when when history looks back, how do you think the decision to turn against God is going to appear? It's foolishness. It's ridiculous. And And God laughs. And yet at the same time, in terms of how God responds to that, we see a response of anger. Verse 5, he rebukes them in his anger. He terrifies them in his wrath, saying, I have installed my king on Zion, my holy mountain. You know, if you love, anger has to go with love. The the two go side by side. Because if you love someone or something, then you are going to be against whatever is against the thing that you love. And God the Father loves his son. He loves the enthronement of Jesus. He loves Jesus' kingship and the righteousness and the goodness of Jesus being king. And so all who oppose this king will experience God's anger. They will crash up against it. I'm reminded of a, a rather humorous story, perhaps some of you have heard, it's, it's, it's an old one, where the story of this battleship that gets lost in the sea in storm at nighttime, and eventually they, are, they see this light way ahead in the distance, and they realize they're in a collision course with this. And so the captain tells the signalman to, to signal and, and, and say, you know, we are on a collision course, I advise you to change course 20 degrees to the east. And then there's a response, and here's message received, 
we advise you to change your course 20 degrees west. And the captain's annoyed. And so he says, I am a captain. Turn 20 degrees east. And the response comes, I am a second-class seaman, but you still had better change course 20 degrees west. And then he says, finally fed up with this, look, I am a battleship. You need to change course. And the response is, I'm a lighthouse. You're a call. <laughs> it's a humorous story, but I want us to just like to pause and recognize that in, in spite of it's silly, when we think about the way that we are, towards what God has decided, we're the boat, right? And he's the island. And every time we say, well, the God that I think should be this way, we're negotiating with an island. God has enthroned his king. He says, this is my king. Do we think God is going to negotiate with us and change his mind? All who oppose the king will crash into the anger of God. I wonder, do we even really believe that anymore? The idea of God being angry, of God having wrath. Because the Bible certainly does. Do we even understand what the word God means? We, we so adjust it, we so shrink it to make it easy for us, but we're talking of the one who has existed for all eternity. I was just talking with someone before the service and we were thinking about how it is that so many people could be praying to God at once and yet he could be hearing it and we realize he is just so different from us. He is so much bigger. How can we not think of God and feel fear? Because the real question is not, what do you think of God? But what does God think of you? What will he do with you? And he says, he rebukes in anger, saying, I have installed my king. And what is implied here is, how dare you oppose him? So we move from this perspective of who God is to this third perspective in verses 7 through 9, where it's spoken from the perspective of the king himself. He says, I will proclaim the Lord's decree, verse 7. He said to me, you are my son. Today I have become your father. We need to understand two things about this. One is this is enthronement language. God promised to David saying, your son and your descendants, I will make a great king. In fact, they will be like a son to me. They will represent my rule. I will give, if they are faithful, I will give this world to them as their inheritance. So in a sense, every time a Davidic son became king, they were enthroned with the words, God saying to them, you are my son, today I've become your father. The second thing to understand, though, is what this is ultimately speaking about is Jesus. Because every son of David failed to live up to this calling. They failed to be faithful. They never were the full, true son of God that God had promised. And there was never a fulfillment until we get to the time of the New Testament where you have this son of David who was born a peasant, right? Even though he was a descendant of David, he was born to a poor family. 
And yet, though he didn't grow up with the trappings of royalty or wealth, there was something about him that people noticed. They speak of how Jesus would speak with authority, unlike any of the other teachers. His authority was so great that if someone was demon-possessed, Jesus would speak and the demon would, would scream in terror and flee. Even diseases would obey him. Even the wind and the waves would obey the word of Jesus because his authority is so great. And then when the rulers of the area conspired against him, when, when the Pharisees and Pilate put him to death, we see God's response. When God raises Jesus from the dead, you know what he is doing? He is saying, this is my son. At his resurrection, Jesus was enthroned. So even Paul understands that Paul, when he's preaching to a synagogue and he's talking about the fulfillment of Psalm 2, he says, I'm going to tell you the gospel. What God has promised our forefathers, he has now fulfilled for us by raising up Jesus. Now, what's the promise that God has fulfilled? He says, as it is written in the second Psalm, you are my son Today I have become your father. When Jesus is raised from the dead, he is enthroned by God as the great king of the world. And Jesus understands that. What does Jesus say after he is risen from the dead right before he ascends? Do you remember? It's Matthew 28, one of the most memorized verses in all the Bible. All authority on heaven and earth has been given to me. It's language of enthronement. I have been made king. All authority on heaven and earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations. See, Jesus knows Psalm 2. Ask of me, and I will make the nations your inheritance. Jesus has asked, and God has made the nations his inheritance. And so he sends his apostles saying, go and tell all the nations that I am their king. And we are those nations today. We are people who have received that word that Jesus is our king. Let me ask you, do you, do you see Jesus that way? Now, it doesn't matter if this is your first time here or you've been here for years, all of us have opinions about Jesus. How do you understand who Jesus is? There are so many things we can say of Jesus that are true. He's known as the friend of sinners. He's the Lamb of God who takes the sins of the world. He is, he is the crucified one. All of these are true. But do you also know that he is your king? That he has authority. When you think of Jesus, do you find your inclination to bow before him and subject yourself to him because that's who he is he is the one to whom all authority on heaven and on earth has been given and so we come to the final stanza the the perspective of faith that says here's what we need to do with this truth and really, we see five commands to say, here's what has to happen. The first two really are that we, that all of the rulers of the world, that everyone needs to come to their senses. So verse 10, therefore, you kings, be wise. 
Be warned, you rulers of the earth. The idea of being wise is come to understand, come to grips with reality. That's what that word means there. And that word, be warned. Think of the significance about this. This is... This could have gone a different direction. It could have been, therefore, O kings of the earth, O rulers of all who have opposed the king, you're in trouble. There is no hope for you because you have opposed God's anointed one. But that's not actually what it says. It says, therefore, be warned. Come to your senses. In other words, here's an invitation of mercy. You were wrong. You were foolish but come back. Now, Jesus, our king, tells the story of who God is that we all know, or many of us know, the prodigal son story, of how God is like a father whose son spat in his face and ran away from him and betrayed him, but when his son comes back, God welcomes him. And that's what we even see here. If you, it doesn't matter what we have done, if you are someone who's come and you have been nothing but angry at God for years or you are someone who has just kind of been playing the part, but inwardly are not submitting yourself to Christ. It doesn't matter who we are. The Bible says, come back. Return. Because God welcomes those who repent. And then the next three commands tell us what it means to return. Serve the Lord with fear. Celebrate his rule with trembling. Kiss his son. Those are three really interesting commands with so many different ideas to serve like a slave, to celebrate, rejoice, to to kiss, and to do this with, with fear, with trembling. We have these ideas of joy and love and humility and fear all brought together in a way that almost doesn't make sense except for the fact that this is exactly what it is to worship one who is so much better than we are. There's this scene in the classic Wind in the Willows where where Rat and Mole meet their God. And Mole speaks to Rat in the moment, saying, Rat, he found breath to whisper, shaking, Are you afraid? Afraid? murmured the Rat, his eyes shining with unutterable love. Afraid? Of him? Oh, never, never. And, and yet, and yet, O oh Mole, I am afraid. There, there is so much noise and so many distractions and so much busyness in our world, but when we peel all it back, there is one truth that we need to know more than anything else. God is God and Jesus is King. And when we understand that, when we see that rightly, there is an awe, a fear, a joy, and a love. God is God and Jesus is King and he says to us, turn to me. Say to me what we have said before in our our, our, service. Uh, service this morning that I am not my own but that I belong body and soul and life and death to my faithful Savior Jesus Christ. The call is to worship our King, to kiss the Son, 
kiss the sun. Those who don't will crash against the reality where we're told at the very end, it will lead to your destruction, verse 12 says. But for those who turn to Jesus as their king, the majestic ruler of the world to whom all authority is given, there is no reason ever more to fear because Jesus is your king. And so it says, blessed are all who take refuge in him. Worship the king. You know, um, James warns us, it says, every time we hear God's word, the danger is for us to hear and not be changed. And so I'd like to just kind of give us a moment in silence to just to think about this passage, to see what has struck us. And in silence, as we are listening, if God moves us and helps us to see where we need to change, to spend some time in quiet confession and prayer as we are trying to listen to God's word. And then I will lead us in prayer in just a moment. So let's spend some time in silence. Lord God, you are our God. And Jesus, you are our King. And this morning we confess that we have failed at times to recognize that reality. Lord, we know we do not worship you like you deserve. There are times that our selfishness is just all too clear. There are times that our pride gets the upper hand. We confess that we are sinful and we turn once again to you for forgiveness because you are a God who welcomes us. And Lord, we ask that you would enable us more and more to be your people, to be those who serve you faithfully, to be those who take refuge in your son. And we pray this in Jesus' name, amen. And let's together hear the good news of the gospel. And where it is bold, would you please respond with me? This is a glorious passage from Revelation where it speaks of how the whole creation and God's people sing a new song saying, Worthy are you, speaking to Jesus, to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain. And by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. And I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that is in them saying together, to him who sits on the throne and to the lamb, 
be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. Thanks be to God.